Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi there and welcome to this episode of Cross Section. This week in the news we've seen the independent review of children's social care published. We've had the Royal Garden Party hosted by Kate Middleton instead of the Queen. We've had here in London the opening of the Elizabeth Line four years late and £4 billion over budget. Harry Styles has performed at the O2 in Brixton and has done a reading of a bedtime story for CBBS. Kylian Mbappe has become the world's highest paid footballer after signing three years a three-year contract with PSG in a deal worth about £1 million a week. In there, there should be a story for everyone. But amongst these stories, it does feel like we're in a time of particularly bad news. Here at Cross Section, we seek... Um, to bring the news together with the Christian hope, the Christian message, to help as Christians as deal with the news through the perspective of following Jesus. As Christians, we're called to be good news people. So this week, myself, Peter Linus and Alicia Edmund are going to do our very best to find pieces of hope in the news. And we're going to start with the conversation that we just can't stop having, the news story that just won't go away. It's that old favourite, Partygate. Uh, In this last week, new photos have been revealed of Boris Johnson socialising with his staff during the 2020 lockdowns, although no more fines for him have been announced. In the same week, the government has done a U-turn and has announced every household in the UK will get an energy bill discount of £400 this October, funded partly by windfall tax on oil and gas firms. Peter, how cynical are you feeling about all this this Thursday afternoon? I'm not I'm not allowed to feel cynical. We're looking for the good news in this moment. Um, but I think you're right. It is easy to feel a little bit uh, cynical and edgy. Uh, Partygate does seem to have gone on forever. Sue Gray's report didn't tell us a lot new. Uh, We saw an apology. We saw the Prime Minister say sorry uh, of sorts. Uh, We've seen the Archbishop of Canterbury come out and say, look, we need to see more integrity in public office. And I think for me, that's still where the story goes to the truth of this. Um, If you set the rules, you've got to live by them. Uh, I'm happy to say that many of us definitely try to push towards the boundaries of those rules. But these are the guys who made the rules. So and it's clear that they weren't just ignoring them at times. I mean, they had a culture that was deeply embedded of wine time on Fridays and stuff that just seems to be really problematic. And there isn't, it doesn't feel like a real owning of it and saying, okay. So there's been some level of that acceptance, but that, I think that's for me the big issue is where is the truth and integrity in public office in this moment? Uh, and then kind of burying the story, it feels like under the cost of living crisis. Yeah, it does seem interesting timing. Alicia, obviously, Rishi Sunak has announced today, Thursday, twenty sixth of May, about the the four hundred pounds discount. Like that is good news. What what do you make of it? Yeah, we spoke about this last week on the podcast. Uh, the cost of inflation going up, the cost of living, uh, and just the seeming need to be for the the government to do more. And so, somewhat of a response. Uh, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has come out uh, and has kind of given a whole host of packages that is looking to support those most vulnerable in community uh, as well as families and households. So there's a good news uh, or at least uh, opportunity and some support for families and households this autumn. So I guess that is a silver lining in the moment, but there's so much more 
that will need to be done as we earn the months. Peter, you were going to come in. What were you going to say? Well, I think it, it, it's a reminder of the limitations of government as well. Look, it's fifteen billion pound package by the sounds of it. He's, he's put a windfall tax, but it's taxing companies that feel remote, but actually probably loads of us have pensions in them, unbeknownst to us all. So you kind of take money off one to pay for the other. It's really important. I think it's got increased uh, payments for those and benefits and those who are uh, on the pension and the triple lock. So some good stuff. But fundamentally, there are huge limitations on what can be done. And I, and I still think we're going to find an incredibly challenging time ahead. In that, for me, there's also the reminder that the government can't do everything and the church and other groups are going to have to step into the mix here. And we were out last week chatting to church leaders around the country and this was definitely something that they were uh, concerned about. They were, they could see the opportunity in that, if you like. They could see the need for them to step in. But this is a time in which the church is also feeling quite stretched as it comes back, less volunteers. But there's an absolute desire to be part of this uh, solution and to be engaged in local communities, yeah. organisations like CAP and the food banks. But to go even deeper, this is going to really be hard for people to navigate and the church is ready to be there but it's it's feeling the stretch as well yeah thanks for touching on that peter because i think with stories like this it is kind of it's hard sometimes to see why should christians care we all work in the advocacy team in at the evangelical alliance and part of what we do is try and encourage christians to engage in public life to engage in stories like this and so that's helpful of kind of bringing it back down to ground of of why christians can and should engage on stories like this because we should care about what's happening with our neighbours in the communities we inhabit. Okay, I'm going to do the most disjointed, difficult uh, transition to our next story. The hugely tragic, awful news this week of another shooting in the States, in Texas, in an elementary school. It's a hugely tragic story. And what's hard is it's a tragedy that we have seen so many times before. There are so many facets that we could get into right now. We could get into American politics. We could get into history repeating itself. But I want to try and keep us focused on UK Christians, Christians living in the UK today that might be hearing the kind of comments that I've seen on social media. I've heard people saying... How can the same people who are saying they're pro-life, anti-abortion, people inhabiting this part of the states, how can those people be defending the right to own and buy a gun? How do we as Christians in the UK enter the conversa- that conversation that is happening now? How do we respond? Difficult one for me to uh, engage in this. I remember at the time uh, working in my previous role for a youth organisation and working on the serious violent crime strategy and being fully aware of kind of the impact of knife crime and the prevalence of guns in uh, in certain communities across the country and how that was deeply impacting lives, communities, families, death by by guns and knife. And so for me, uh, I I sit here and and wouldn't want that to be a kind of a a reality in our community that um, guns and shootings in schools and, and in public spaces is a daily news, but for the friends and kind of the state of America, the conversation is very different. It's very much a, a conversation about constitutional rights, so that Second Amendment, I believe, the right to bear arms, and that kind of disjointed nature that owning a gun doesn't always mean that it leads to violence. And so looking for the good news or the good opportunity in this, I'd imagine for me that 
the conversation in America would shift to a public health conversation in terms of gun ownership. How does it impact communities? How does it impact society at large? I was reading uh, on the BBC about how over 45,000 um, people in 2020 died from gun-related crimes, and and half of that is through suicide. So there's there's a conversation in America that needs to happen beyond the Second Amendment rights to bear arms and be thinking about the overall impact of owning a gun, suicide rates, homicides, violent crime, what could be done to tackle that and kind of be framing the argument in a, in a positive that benefits the whole society? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think for me, one of the things we've talked about before on here is the importance of kind of foundation stories, shaping stories. And as Alicia said, that the foundation, the constitutional story in the States is really important. So one of the senators or uh, congressmen this week was saying, uh, we're built, America's built on Judeo-Christian foundation and with guns. You're like, well, actually, yeah, in one sense, yes, but what a bizarre combination of foundation stories that you've got there. Those those are mutually exclusive, like to some degree. I want to really push back now. It's deeply in the American psyche to have guns. And that raises a question that we struggle sometimes to comprehend over here. But also as outsiders, I think we have to ask the question back, hold on. How have they got this place? What story are you basing this on? It's about freedom. It's about the kind of go and conquer the West kind of mentality that was going on. And we have real questions about that because I think it fundamentally it's possible to be absolutely pro-life or anti-abortion and, and anti-guns. And that's the stance I am. And, and I, I'm really intrigued about the use of the Christian story around the guns and the Christian story in this moment. So the Times had a piece yesterday saying, hey, Republicans pray for victims but won't give up gun freedoms. So really pushing on that point. But Joe Biden, the president, was tweeting three or four times yesterday, invoking the name of God in various ways in his tweets. And what in God's name is this? And why in God's name do we need this gun over here? And it's like, well, yeah, but I don't think you're doing it in the right way. I do want to appeal to that fundamental story, but differently than either of the sides are doing right now. And I do have a challenge to our evangelical Christian friends in the States to say, I think we need to do better because you've, you've, there's a Christian nationalism deep in there. There's a mixing of stories that isn't healthy and helpful. And we need outsiders to do the same for us sometimes and challenge us. I say that as somebody from Northern Ireland, but there's a Christian nationalism of a different type. But I have a real problem as to how those stories have got mixed up. And so I do want to accentuate the positive. I think it's great that faith in public square and that conversation is ongoing again, but we need a new narrative around it. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think you named it there of of when, so people are grouping these um, political positions together to be pro-life and pro-gun. And that's kind of being associated with, with, a, with a Christian identity as well. That's all kind of being pulled together. And I think as Christians, it's okay to step into that. I, I think there can be a nervousness about saying that we disagree with other Christians or other people that are presented as Christians. I think it's okay to, to, to join that conversation unafraid to call in some nuance and say, yeah, just because, just because I agree with these people on this point doesn't mean I agree with them on the other. Any, any other comments you want to come in with that? I'm not sure if anything else helpful to add. I feel like I could talk about this a lot and it is a fascinating story and, uh, I do think the gun culture in the US is something. It's not the guns per se. We know that there's lots of other countries like Canada and like Switzerland that have the same levels of gun ownership, but it's the types of guns, the story that comes around it, and there is almost a contagion effect. We know this with suicide and other stories. If you keep telling that story, it's uniquely US based. 
how can you end up in a point where guns are now the leading cause of death for children and teens in the US? It's overtaken car crashes, which was previously that. This is the main cause of death. Every single school is being trained in this. Uh, it just seems a strange way to understand what is to be made in the image of God, the most precious thing in life around our children, how we'd want to do that, and to have them trained in every single school to deal with these kind of scenarios. Is this a tipping point? I sadly suspect not quite yet, but I'm kind of hoping they're moving in that direction. Something has to give and something has to change. Mm. I, do, I do think this is a moment where we can join in with our peers in in grief and outrage, where the overlap, where there's a clear overlapping of values. There's a, it feels like a kind of universal outrage that these children were killed in this horrific way. We can join in with that. And as we join in that conversation and ask why people feel the way they feel, take genuine interest, we can talk about how our grief is entirely framed by the fact that we believe in a God who created each individual life, uniquely loved, knew every hair on their head. So I think in moments of tragedy, that is a moment where we can step in and, and bring those conversations gently round to the fact that our entire existence is shaped by the fact that we believe in a creator God. It's a huge story. It's a difficult story. We'd love to know what you think. You can tweet us, EA UK News. You can message us on Instagram, Evangelical Alliance, or you can email us, cross.section at eauk.org. What, what were we missing from that conversation? What would you like to add to the story? What should we be talking about? So, moving on. What is the R rate of your denomination? Dr. John Hayward, a visiting mathematics fellow at the University of South Wales, has analysed data from 13 church denominations to assess the rate at which their membership is growing or declining using a technique devised to calculate the rate of which diseases such as COVID-19 are spreading. Peter, can you give us a taste of what the stats are telling us? Yes, well, I mean, I, I can't let the common go by without such a wonderful transition again, Joe. That was seamless <laughs> as we move That's between the stories. That's the this week's stories. They just, they just run one into the other. It really makes my job a dream. It's a wonderful change of gear. So, uh, yeah, he's uh, come up with this kind of the R rate, picking up on the COVID idea. And, I mean, the headline, first thing is, he says, look, Christianity is declining in the UK, kind of first line of the article. And uh, I've got a, got a hat tip, Danny, as well, who's not with us today, but who's flagging this story on social media. But then in behind, he's saying, OK, so some churches are in decline, uh, some churches are on the rise. And the reason for that is really the infectiousness of our faith as, as we share that with others. And so actually has uh, an analogy to something like COVID. And so uh, fascinating, he's saying it's some of the older churches predominantly in decline. United Reform, Church in Wales, Scottish Episcopal, and various ones. But then he said there are a whole series of other churches that are growing. Uh, Vineyard, the RCCG Church, uh, FIEC, NFI, Elam, uh, a variety of churches, uh, many of whom are in the membership of the Evangelical Alliance. So when you start to pick below the story, you start to see actually some more interesting. So he's saying by 2050, 2060, 2070, some of those will have gone into extinction. Some of the ones are in decline. But actually, the others are going to keep growing. And uh, so that's the silver lining in that. There's lots more interesting stuff below. But that was the kind of headline. We're in decline, but actually go beneath and there's more interesting things happening. I think it is important to... This stuff is interesting. I saw a, a tweet. There was many a tweet from many a pastor about these statistics. 
I, I saw something interesting which said the, this kind of stuff is good to challenge us and challenge our thinking. I, I do think it's worth saying I personally believe that Jesus is in charge of the church. He will grow his people. He has promised to do that. I am not concerned about the death of the church. Considering, again, how closely are we making disciples? How readily are we sharing our faith about the good news of what Jesus has done in our lives? It's, that's the prompt. That's the stirring that I get from this news story. Not that the church is soon to die, but more of that readiness to be. I have a responsibility. I have an opportunity both in my work and in my church life and in my friendship groups to talk about God's goodness in every area of life. And I think that's the kind of the the boost that we need as Christians uh, and the motivation that we need. And of course, recently uh, the team and, and partners uh, with the Evangelical Alliance published the Talking Jesus Report, which if you haven't read, I encourage you to go read it, where it's just a great encouragement to, to us, the church here in the UK, of how important it is to invest, looking at that stat that 53% of non-Christians are in proximity to someone who is a practicing Christian. That challenge to me is how much am I sharing my faith with with, with those uh, around me? How readily am I talking about Jesus? That's the motivation uh, of equipping and making disciples. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not in fear. The bride is an eternal bride. She will outlast governments. She will outlast nations. Uh, but I definitely have a responsibility to share the good news. Amen. And I feel rebuked by you both, so that's good. Um, on that. And that's why the Talking Jesus stuff, I think, is so critical uh, with our partners. As, as Alyssa said, like the majority of non-Christians know a Christian. We know it used to be one in five non-Christians were interested in, in hearing about faith and about Jesus. That was the stat from 2015. That's now up to one in three. So those are encouraging statistics. There is an openness in this season, and that's actually even higher again amongst the younger uh, generation. So 18 to 24 year olds, it's up to, I think, 46 percent want to hear more about Jesus. So there's some really encouraging data in there. And in the in the original piece, there's also encouraging data about actually the churches that are growing. And the guy looked at this. We didn't ask him to, but he said those that hold a more orthodox position on some of the, the hot topic issues are the ones that are growing. So I, I'm really interested in stats and stories. I'm really interested in the statistics behind because I think we need to learn some stuff. Uh, we, let's not be afraid of that. But I absolutely agree. I want to hear the stories of those who are coming to faith in Jesus in this moment and those who are sharing their faith and get excited about those two things coming together so that we learn some good information about what is working and what isn't. But fundamentally, we're saying, absolutely, God, you're in charge. Come Holy Spirit across this land. Yeah, exactly, Peter. And just watch for this um, incredibly smooth transition that I've devised. John Stevens, the, the national director of FIEC, said that he believed the churches that were growing, it was because they were faithfully preaching the biblical message. They were growing because they were fulfilling a spiritual need. He claimed that churches um, that were trying to do more progressive teaching, focused on blending into society around us or focusing on on topical issues such as that um, we're not attracting new worshippers as people feel they can pursue these issues more effectively outside the church i think that really taps into concerns around cancel culture which brings us beautifully onto the story concerning comedian ricky gervais i'll hold for applause comedian ricky gervais has a new netflix special called super nature super nature. It's fair to say it's a bit of a jaw dropper with jokes about trans issues, HIV, praying, Hitler, many other 
topics. I've only seen cl some clips, but Peter, I believe you've watched the whole thing. I've watched nearly it all, and it is not. It isn't good for your soul. I was going to say. I think that's true. I mean, it is. It's a challenging one. I'm not going to recommend it for a second. I'm clocking it up as research. It's. I mean, it's got a lot of media coverage in the last couple of days. A lot of the papers have picked it up, particularly on his comments on trans. But interestingly, the whole premise of the show is basically super nature. He says at one point because he's anti-supernatural. I mean, Ricky Gervais is a, a very clear and open atheist says nature is enough, nature is super, it's fantastic, and he has a good go at praying, uh, particularly praying for healing. I don't find it offensive when he does it, I totally disagree with him, but I don't feel that therefore we need to ban him, which is what gets interesting about everything else, and he's very clear what he's doing, he said I'm having a go at cancel culture, I mean this is him essentially playing the role of court jester and holding up the mirror to society and saying, what do you think about loads of these issues, why is it you're laughing about this? Why does this hit a raw nerve and wanting to push back in? So I find it, I mean, pretty intriguing at some points. And I do think we've reached the point where, yeah, the holding up the mirror to society is a really helpful, broadly thing, though I wouldn't say necessarily you should go and watch. In fact, don't go and watch Ricky Gervais' show. If you watch um, a different show he's created, Afterlife, there are many undertones of compassion of grace humor how to love in difficult times where if he's not inspired by the living word there's definitely uh, some level of godly divine intervention in his writing as for the comedy yes i like peter watched it for research it is incredibly jarring i think that point about mirror to society in culture uh, and pushing back on, on the cancel culture that's prevalent throughout society i think he 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 loves to hit the bees nest. He loves to rile. He, if he gets cancelled for this show, it would be playing into the hands of those that he was seeking to wind up. So he cuts across many themes as he raised uh, and loves to infuriate and rile people. So yeah, definitely don't watch it, uh, but definitely continue to keep praying for dear Ricky. Well, Dave Chappelle's under that. Is it Bill Maher in the States? I mean... Uh, Stephen Fry had, I mean, his Seven Deadly Sins podcast was fascinating, uh, again, talking about sin and religion. And um, oh, I've forgotten your guy who got Manuel cancelled from uh, Faulty Towers. What do you call the comedian? Help me. He's the one who's also obsessed <laughs> about his own sex life and talking about it. And uh, long hair, black curly hair comedian. Oh, it's going to... Brad, Russell Brand. Russell Brand. Also can't resist in his podcast exploring religion yes and so for me i just find it so intriguing how they're pushing at some of the stereotypes they cannot avoid talking about religion because there is something more always going on most of the time it's not very constructive but the odd time fry and brand it really pushes into very interesting space and again it goes for me back to the talking jesus research people want there to be something more i'm not saying they immediately go yes to jesus but actually 20 percent think jesus did exist 16 percent think he rose from the dead that's a really interesting start point for a whole load of conversations that I want to have with people. So I'm praying for them, praying for friends, and finding this cultural moment really fascinating. It's like everything's up for grabs, including things that were considered inconceivable a few years ago, it seems to me, like believing in Jesus, like going to church, like where do our kids get their values from, and the conversation's shifting around. So while it's chaotic, I find it 
strangely exciting because in a world of chaos, we always want order. That's the Genesis story is telling us. Said before, we've looked to Peterson in the past for that because that was what Jordan Peterson said he was doing. Chaotic world, let's bring order. That's not the solution. He points a little bit to God, but I don't think he gets Jesus and I definitely don't think he gets the Holy Spirit. So what excites me and what I'm seeing in these moments is what they're opening up, a chaotic world that wants something more. And it's a huge opportunity for us if we navigate this space correctly. What I think we need to be careful about is we don't say, Ricky Gervais is great or J.K. Rowling's great just because mm-hmm. they've challenged one particular narrative that I agree with what they're doing in that moment. That's not the solution. Their foundation story is fundamentally flawed again. So I'm really interested in a similar challenge in this moment, but based on a very different premise of what it is to be a divine image bearer, what it is to be male and female made in the image of God, and therefore to engage in a different conversation, but in a more compassionate way. I get his court jester. That's not our role as Christians to play, but I get that somebody might play it in culture and we might then occupy the space in behind and say, hold on, I think there's a better way of talking about this. I'm glad you touched on that because, so a bit of a sideways question in all of this, but like you said, some Christians might agree with some of the things Ricky Gervais said, and yet we would never want him to be our represent our representative because of the way that he frames those arguments. And I saw an LGBTQ plus group was criticising Ricky Gervais, saying his words are violence. So what what do we do as Christians when we believe that words are powerful, right? God brought the world into being through words. And yet we also kind of want to be people that uphold free speech. I think I'm fairly safe in saying that. How, how do we marry those two together? How do you tie that kind of thing together with stuff like Ricky Gervais? I'm just going to let whichever one of you wants to jump in on this. You're fighting over it. Whoever wants to jump in, take that question. So I think you're absolutely right about this, the power of words and speech acts. So God spoke and life and the world came into being. And again, actually, Jordan Peterson is very interested in this. That's where he premises his importance of free speech. The problem is he can't build beyond that. And what Jesus then is doing is laying down his life on behalf of others. So we do recognize the power of speech, the power of naming in the conversation. Names bring forth life. They're incredibly important in the biblical text. So I want to be absolutely, yes, honor that. But then recognizing that power and how I use the powers I have then to raise up and to protect and to uh, reach out towards others. So it's a, it's a dance because power is often seen as a negative. Power is a gift that we have been given often. And many of us hold power in the conversations that we're in. Uh, but then we need to steward that and use that power and lay down that power on behalf of others. So we almost fight for this free speech of others. I, I fight for Ricky Gervais's right to, frankly, slag off and, and have a go at all sorts of things, including my Christian faith. But it's in that freedom I have all sorts of other abilities and to have different conversations. God doesn't need me to defend him. I don't like what he's doing, but I'm not worried that it, you know, my God is a lot more powerful than what Ricky Gervais has to say in that moment. Mm-hmm. So that is the dance and free speech and our, our whole understanding of that is premised on a, a Judeo-Christian framework. Great. Well, as we try to wrap up this conversation where as Christians, we're trying to look for the good news in a week of frankly, a lot of bad news. I want to share that as I've been reflecting on these stories, particularly particularly that horrific story of, of the school shooting, I certainly find the temptation when surrounded by bad news that I want to bury my head in the sand. I don't want to face it. I don't want to think about it. I think there can be wisdom in protecting our hearts from being overwhelmed by bad news. But as Christians, we can't ignore it. We can't ignore the world that we're living in. 
because although we may have a hope that goes beyond this world for our friends and peers who don't yet know Jesus, it's the only reality that they have. And so it's so important. That's why we do this podcast. It's so important for Christians to be able to engage with these difficult and frankly, depressing conversations. Because when we meet people in their felt need for hope, we have a really powerful opportunity to talk about Jesus and what it means to follow him in life now. As always, thank you very much to Chris Ringland, who does all the post-production and has to deal with our antics. We will see you again next week. This has been Cross Section. Goodbye. Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture.